iHeartRadio presents Inside the Studio. I'm your host, Joe Lee. This time around, I got a chance to sit down with Lenny Kravitz, who, just from the way he dresses, is one of our ultimate rock stars. Sometimes that's a reason people love him. Sometimes it's a reason people make fun of him. But we sat down and he opened up about his dreams, an encounter with Johnny Cash he had at Rick Rubin's house, and the trouble he had getting started on his new record, Phrase Vibration. Now, the backstory of most Lenny Kravitz albums is a rock and roll fantasy. Lenny rented a chateau in France to work in, or he was living in his vintage Airstream trailer on the beach in the Bahamas, and he was recording in the studio that he'd built for himself in an island paradise. But making this latest album was a little different, at least in the lead-up. After 10 albums going back almost 30 years to Let Love Rule in 1989, as well as a handful of acting roles in Precious, The Hunger Games, and the TV series Star... Kravitz wasn't exactly sure where he was, or maybe who he was, musically. You know, his course early on had been charted by the music of the 60s and the 70s that he grew up loving. Born in 1964, Lenny Kravitz seems to have entered the world wearing bell-bottoms and a fringed buckskin vest, and has really never taken them off. But he's also a musical polymath, and he plays nearly all the instruments on his album— and he's always shuffled styles, 70s Philly soul, misty mountain hop rock stompers, roots reggae, super saturated Beatles melody. Like he was a Vegas dealer at a blackjack table. Early on, his style was firmly rooted between 1967, the summer of love, and 1977, the summer of punk. And he used a recording method as vintage as the clothes he wore. But by the time he was covering the Guess Who's American Woman in 1999 for the soundtrack to Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, well, he'd embraced modern technology on singles like Fly Away. He was a decade or so into his career, and he'd already racked up enough songs for a greatest hits package full of the sort of inescapable hits that Bachman Turner Overdrive or the Guess Who put on the radio in the 1970s. Now, that's not really the version of the 70s he was aiming for, but who cares? It Ain't Over Till It's Over, Stand By My Woman, great songs. Are You Gonna Go My Way and Always on the Run, completely different kind of great songs. And sometimes, as a listener, that's really all that matters. But leading up to Ray's Vibration, his latest and 11th album, Kravitz was getting pressure to work with outside producers and come up with a sound that was more contemporary. Although he's recorded with Jay-Z as far back as his 2004 album Baptism, and he worked with Avicii on a remix of Super Love from his 2011 album Black and White America, contemporary has never exactly been Lenny Kravitz's lane. And so he found himself, if not at a crossroads, in a kind of artistic traffic jam. Stuck. Because I can play many different styles and I like so many different genres of music, I wasn't really clear on where it was I wanted to go. Hmm. I can go here, I can go there, I can go here. And I was thinking too much. But it was good because I've never really done that. 
So it was really good because what it led to was me letting go of every thought that I had and just stopping. And when I did that and I got quiet, I began to wake up in the middle of the night with songs in my head. Mm. And that to me is the most beautiful way because it takes me, my thought process, my ego, whatever is there, takes it out of it. And it's just pure channeling. And I dream tunes all the time, but I've never dreamt a whole album. So now, when, when you say you dreamt this whole album, mm. it was coming to you one song at a time, not one every song night. At a time. Not every night, no, weeks. but one song at a time. And I would wake up and put the melody that I'm hearing on in my head on a, on a recorder, or I'd grab the guitar in the bedroom and put the chords down and hum whatever the melody is, or recite whatever words it is that I was hearing. And then you would take and then that I would go into the studio, studio and work on a track, work on it for a week, work on it for two weeks, work on, you know, whatever, however long it took me to put things together because I'm playing all the instruments and I'm doing all the orchestrations and, and so forth. So everything's happening one at a time. And then that song would sort of get finished and then here comes another one. Dreaming tunes and then waking up and recording them. You know, if you were writing a novel about a rock star and you came up with a character like Lenny Kravitz, it'd be a pretty hard sell. You'd probably get a stern talking to from your editor along the lines of, well, this is fascinating. And the parts about dating the Brazilian supermodel and Tom Cruise's ex-wife, those are definitely a lot of fun. But it's really not very believable. Could you come up with something a little more realistic? Because... Kravitz's life and accomplishments defy most of the way we understand the world works and sometimes the laws of space and time. Some details, chosen more or less at random. He was born in New York City to a black mother and a white father. His mom, Roxy Roker, was an actress. His dad, Cy Kravitz, was a former Green Beret who, after serving in the Korean War, became a TV producer with a sideline as a jazz promoter and a music producer. Lenny Kravitz grew up with artists and musicians in and out of his house, including Duke Ellington and Miles Davis. At age six, he saw James Brown at the Apollo, and around the same time, he saw the Jackson 5 at Madison Square Garden. Photos from this era show a young Lenny with a peace sign painted on his forehead like a third eye. In our rock and roll novel, we'd call that foreshadowing. By age 10, he was living in Los Angeles because his mom had gotten cast on the sitcom The Jeffersons, playing half of an interracial couple, a part Kravitz has said was modeled to some degree on her own life. During this time, Lenny joined the California Boys Choir and performed classical music, sometimes with the Metropolitan Opera. But by the time he was a teenager, he was deep into rock and roll and attending Beverly Hills High School. Although, he really wouldn't become friends with the other guitar-obsessed biracial kid in his class, Saul Hudson, until later, when Saul was known as Slash and playing with Guns N' Roses. At 23, in 1987, Kravitz got married in Las Vegas to Lisa Bonet, then parlaying her role in the number one television show in America, The Cosby Show, into her own series, A Different World. Their daughter, Zoe, was born a year later. During this time, Lenny was recording his music on his own. And after being rejected by labels for not sounding black enough or white enough, he was signed in 1989 by Virgin. 
The story goes that he played five minutes of his music and the A&R person he was meeting with left the room, came back with another executive who promptly declared that Kravitz was Prince, meets John Lennon, and signed him. Kravitz's debut, Let Love Rule, came out that same year, and it established the blueprint he'd follow over the next decade. He recorded almost everything himself and borrowed from the heroes of the 1960s and 70s without apology, creating a world where John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix were locked arm-in-arm with Bob Marley and the Commodores. Critics didn't give him much slack when it came to his retro look and sound, but other artists and audiences were more accepting. When Let Love Rule came out, Prince phoned Kravitz out of the blue to connect, and Kravitz found himself opening for Tom Petty, David Bowie, and Bob Dylan, who brought him on stage at one point to sing Maggie's Farm. I was scared shitless, Kravitz remembered earlier this year. I didn't know the words. In 1991, Kravitz hit number two with the soulful breakup ballad, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, from Mama Said, a second album charged by the dissolution of his marriage. By 1993, with Kravitz riding high on the title track from his third album, a zipline rocker called Are You Gonna Go My Way, the opening act on his European tour was none other than Robert Plant, who dubbed Lenny Kravitz the new king of cock rock. By the way, Kravitz says he and guitarist Craig Ross came up with Are You Gonna Go My Way in five minutes at the end of a recording session while someone else was waiting to get into the studio. Anyway, you see what I mean about our rock and roll novel not seeming particularly realistic, and we have not even gotten to the part about his homes in the Bahamas in Brazil, or the Manhattan apartment he sold for a reported $15 million, or his engagement to Victoria's Secret model Adriana Lima, or the statue of Miles Davis he has in his Paris home, which is a four-story townhouse originally built to be the U.S. Embassy, or the bit about him being a distant cousin of NBC weatherman Al Roker, or the half of a joint that he smoked with Mick Jagger and kept as a talisman for about a year until he ran out of weed and smoked the rest of it. Honestly, we've barely scratched the surface of all the ways in which Lenny Kravitz is some sort of platonic ideal of a rock star. Kravitz, who rose to fame in the early 90s era of grunge and gangster rap, was ridiculed for just this. And it's worth asking why. Yeah, he borrowed wholesale from the music of the past with a clear love of Led Zeppelin, and he went on stage looking like he was in costume. But then again, so did Jack White of the White Stripes. In the late 80s and early 90s, as Kravitz was weaving the music of his childhood into his own albums, rappers were building their sounds around samples of George Clinton, Zap, or Stevie Wonder. And Kravitz may or may not have been thinking about just this when he took a Public Enemy instrumental, itself made from a James Brown sample, added some synthesizers, and turned it into Madonna's Justify My Love. Oh yeah, I understand. Grunge, gangster rap, the White Stripes, they're a little more inventive. They have a little more to tell us about the world than Lenny Kravitz's escapism. But I can't remember the last time Rock and roll, pop music didn't include escapism. And as for Lenny Kravitz being dedicated to vintage sounds, listen to what goes around comes around from Mama Said Today, and it sounds like a model for Pharrell Williams.
Kravitz is still playing around with the music of the past. It's Enough, from Ray's Vibration, is a protest song laced with conspiracy theory undertones, and it uses a Curtis Mayfield groove. And one of the most interesting songs on the new album, Johnny Cash, starts off with some Ernie Isley guitar. Kravitz talked with me about his encounter with Johnny and June Carter Cash at Rick Rubin's house, and about his phone calls with Prince and Bill Clinton, and about the album he has Waiting in the Wings, which has guest appearances from George Clinton, James Brown's saxophonist Maceo Parker, and other greats. So, let's join Lenny Kravitz in his dream world. Well, Lenny Kravitz, welcome to Inside the Studio. Thank you. Good to be here. One of the first tracks that we heard from this new album was mm. Low. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, the, the video for that, you did with uh, John Baptiste Mandino. John Baptiste Mandino, yeah. Famed fashion photographer, great video and, director, oh, yeah, someone you've worked with in the past. Yeah. And it, it begins, it's just a dark room yeah. with you on the drums. Yes. And I was interested by that because that's sometimes how the recording process starts for you, right? You know, right? I didn't think of that. That's very good. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. <laughs> I was in Paris and, and he wanted to hear the album. So I invited him over to hear the record. Mm. And when Lowe came on, he kept saying, play that again, play mm. that again, play that again. And I had no idea that he'd want to make a video because he, he doesn't really make videos that much anymore. It's very special when he does. But he kept listening to it. And there's a lot of orchestration on low, there's you know, there's two guitars, there's bass, there's mini moog bass, there's drums, there's percussion all over the place, there's an orchestra, there's horn arrangements, but he kept focusing on the drum beat, and it it pulled him in, and he just started riffing on this idea. He's like, you should do a video. I just want to see you on the drums. Black room, black clothes, black drums, and just have it be really sparse and empty and elegant and forget any storyline and sets and locations and very stripped down and it worked i mean i love it it is one of those videos that changes how you hear things a little bit but it It does but no but that was one of his points he said that when the video was edited and he watched it the comments people were giving him were that they heard the music differently yeah, suddenly it sounds as stripped down as that video looks. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, the power of sight, right? Of an image, yeah. So let's stick with this just for one more second, because it's not just you uh, in this video, alone in this room, right. against a dark setting. Yeah. There's one other person. Yes. And she's a great drummer that just graduated from Berkeley School of Music named Jazz. And I met her through a friend of mine who's from the Bahamas, who lives in the Bahamas, who's going to Berkeley School of Music and knew her. And he had shown me footage of her playing at one point. And when Jean-Baptiste and I were in my kitchen in Paris talking about the video, we started coming up with this idea that it'd be really cool to have a female energy 
in the video and that she would appear and disappear and appear and it becomes this sort of conversation. I guess it is a conversation. It it also struck me, I mean, it felt like this moment of gender fluidity because she's sometimes articulating the the vocals. Yeah, she's singing. Yeah, she's doing what I'm doing. Exactly. There's no difference between you and her is is part of what, part of the message, part of what I'm getting. No, we're the same clothes and... Um, but she's beautiful and she's just an amazing drummer and um, yeah, it came out really good. Every element was right. Right. Yeah. I want to stick with the videos just for another second because uh, It's Enough, mm-hmm. uh, another one of the early tracks from this record that we heard, mm-hmm. the video comes with a content warning. You're about to see some oh, very right, graphic right, images right, right. Uh, because there's a lot of news footage in this video. This mm-hmm. is a, a protest song mm-hmm. with what sounded to me like almost a, a Curtis Mayfield kind of groove, mm-hmm. Curtis Mayfield vibe to it. Tell me about this. That song, It's Enough. Actually, I recorded that song twice mm-hmm. in the process. When I first recorded it, it came out very punk. Really? It was almost like a Ramones track. I'd and like to hear that. I still have it. And I, I will release it at some point, like on a B-side of something or just let it out because it's really cool. But I played it for my daughter when she came out of the Bahamas. And she's like, mm, I don't know. She's not, just she like, wasn't feeling the punk not, No, not, not about the punk because she loves the Ramones, but she just thought that it wasn't right for that song. Mm. Or for me, I don't know. And she just said, I don't know. I just, she's like, I just, it should be a little more like this or like that. And, she, and so I didn't think much about it after that. And then I really started thinking about it. I was like, hmm. And then the idea came in again, in one of these dreams. And I completely recut the tune. But the point was. And, and when you recut it, did you build it around the groove? Or? I built it around the groove that's on the record that you hear. But what's interesting and what works better than it did before, which I understand what she was saying, was that I took it down. I I pulled it in. Mm -hmm. I made it very sparse and Mm -hmm. funky. But when I'm singing the lyrics, they're very quiet. They're smooth. There's space between each sentence. And therefore, you hear the message stronger than when I was giving it to you yelling. So that's what it was. Let's talk about the message of this song. Mm. I mean, there are a lot of things. War comes up. Pharmaceutical companies pushing their wares on us comes up in this song. At one point, you mentioned chemtrails in the sky. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different things that you go through, all with the idea Mm -hmm. that it's enough. You reference that saying attributed to Jimi Hendrix, uh, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, then we'll know peace. That's Mm -hmm. that's referenced in there. Yeah, I have a sentence that's... Somewhat says the same thing. Yeah. I know looking at the video, all the things that we see, as we see... And by the way, you could change that video every week. Exactly. Like, that's, that's an I important point. I haven't point. seen it since it came out, but I'm sure it's like already like... I mean, there's things that are obviously still happening, but again, you could refeed so that thing once a week. And, and that's and what I want to ask you. Is this you reacting to the news of the day? Are we so inundated with it? Is that the feeling it's enough or, no, it's, or what? It's enough of what's going on. Mm. It's enough of that. Mm. It's enough of all that stuff. Mm. The negativity, the destruction of ourselves and our planet, how we treat each other. It's a shame. It mm. really is a shame. We're living in, we've always been living in, what's the word I want to use? Challenging times. Mm-hmm. There's always issues. But we're getting to a point now where it's about to blow. Feels like things are on fire. You know, it's about to blow. Mm-hmm. Will we? Can we? 
turn around. Mm. You know, will we raise our consciousness, raise our vibration, mm -hmm. and really realize what's important? Mm. And when you have governments that are operating on greed and power mm -hmm. and money and, mm -hmm. and corporations, and it's a lot, man. You know, one thing that struck me was uh, you see some footage of the neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville, Virginia in this video. And I flashed on a, a song from a few years ago, the title track of your 2011 album, Black and White. Yeah, Black and White America, yeah. Black and White America, where you're talking about maybe we've reached a point where the future has come around mm. and we've found that we finally have common ground. Right. And now it's a number of years later and it doesn't feel that way so it's much anymore. It's really interesting how it just did a backflip, mm. you know? And a lot of that is obviously a reaction to that it was moving forward. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that feel that enough of this. And it does amaze me how backwards we've gone. It's really surreal and a trip. Mm. You're someone who, born in the 60s, came of age in the 70s. And had interracial parents. So... Which is, is certainly something that comes up in that song in Black and White America. Yeah. You actually talk about yeah. uh, your parents falling mm -hmm. in love, yeah. getting married. In... Absolutely. I mean, they had the inspiration for that song as well right. as, I mean, obviously the history of in our nation. But, uh, but but at the point that they fell in love and got married in the 60s, being exactly. in danger, just walking down exactly. the street. Exactly. They dealt with a lot of uh, issues and hate. And, and then it's just ironic that my mom ends up on a television show, you know, you know, historic sitcom, The Jeffersons, where she played basically, I mean, she didn't play herself, but the character Helen Willis was essentially her. Married a black to a, woman married to a white man in New York City. Yeah, so we've been carrying this torch. Right. <laughs> you know? But, you know, as someone who is about the same age as you are, we've seen these reactionary forces. We've lived through this before because mm -hmm. the whatever progress was made in the 60s or 70s perhaps was set back or slowed down by Reagan's America. Mm -hmm. What's your feeling about where we're at now? I mean, we're going to get to the title of the record, the title track mm -hmm. of the record, Raise Vibration, mm -hmm. in just a second. You've already brought it up. But are you part of the resistance? Do you feel that way as a musician, as an artist? Uh, you know, when there's a march, do you want to get out on the street? That I do, yeah. But I'm all about love. Mm. So... It doesn't matter who, what country, where, who, this president, that president, this prime minister, this king, this whoever. Mm -hmm. If they're not operating from a place of love and concern for the people, then I'm not down with that. Mm -hmm. And that's all over the world. We can talk about this country, this president, this thing. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it just seems that we're losing our minds more and more. Each year is getting more ridiculous, and I don't understand it. As people, we're living in this time where the technology and the social media has really done a number on us. How do you mean? Where we should be paying attention to our lives, ourselves, and what's really going on, we're absorbed in the media, and we're absorbed with our narcissism, and we're absorbed with just being in this other reality 
And when you're saying you were absorbed in the media, I just want people to know you're holding up your, your hand oh, as though yeah. as though you're looking into your phone. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're really talking about being lost in our screens. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's part of the plan. Uh, but we got to get our heads out of wherever they may be and really look at ourselves and what's going on. All right, hold up. What do you mean that's part of the plan? What are you, <laughs> well, what are you I don't think me? it's just, I think there's some design to all this. Hmm. I mean, I think they like us to be in there. Hmm. You think there's... It's like, look over here, look over here. You think there's almost so, a, a, an organized, whether it's intention or not, an organized culture of distraction? There's, there's a lot of that. Hmm. Yeah. Who benefits from that? Those folks. <laughs> okay. Uh, very small group of folks. No, but it's like, you know, I mean, you can get into all the conspiracy stuff. And, well, I mean, you, no, you, 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 you got a song where you mentioned the chemtrail. So I got to ask you, are you into that stuff? I mean, I'm fascinated by a lot of this stuff. Hmm. There's so many questions and we don't have all the answers. No, but there's a lot of things going on that need some explaining whether we'll ever get the answers or not. I don't know. But at the end of the day, with all this going on, to get back to, I choose to remain optimistic and mm. I choose to choose the path of love. And that's the way I was raised. I can't really help it. Um, I mean, this is something you've been talking about. We're going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Let Love Rule next year. So this is something you've been going on about for 30 years, right? I can't believe it's 30 years coming, man. Wow. Yeah. I mean, from Let Love Rule to Raise Vibration, it's been... Mm-hmm. The kind of bookends. It's the same message, just said in a different way. And time has changed things. But what's interesting is, forget even my records. We won't even reference my record. A record by Marvin Gaye, What's mm-hmm. Going On. Sounds like it was written yesterday. I had it on recently. I was, it's like, we're right there. It, it doesn't just sound like it was written yesterday. To a certain extent, it sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday yeah, as well. Because we've, right, yeah. we've returned to, to some of those sounds. And, mm-hmm. and I want to ask you something. Do you ever feel like... You didn't get a fair shake. Your music, you took a little bit of stick about being a revivalist, mm-hmm. right? Being interested yeah. in the things you were retro. interested in. Retro. That was a very big word, yeah. And at the same time, late 80s, in the world of hip-hop, mm-hmm. if you go back to an old record and sample it, mm-hmm. just take the music, manipulate it, right. which one could say you might do by loving old records mm-hmm. and writing new songs the mm-hmm. way that you were. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to old music and sample it, you're celebrated. Mm-hmm. But if you're Lenny Kravitz, you're retro. It's all good. You know, it all comes around. It's like I've always been original and written my own music, but I have my influences. No Man, I'm trying to get you angry, <laughs> no, and you are letting no, love rule. But no more than the, I mean, look at the Stones. You look at Zeppelin. I mean, we could go deep into that. Mm-hmm talking about other artists who drew very direct inspiration from their sources even more than i did Mm -hmm. you know what i mean but any musician it's all the things that you grew up on it's all the education you've had mixed up together in in a stew and it comes out you bring it out your own way you know but still i want to tell you as somebody who heard those records coming out at the time Mm -hmm. that that retro idea did shape and color the way that I interacted with mm. them. So when I go back to Let Love Rule right, right now, and right. I hear Mr. Cab Driver, right. here's a song that when I heard it almost 30 years ago, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, the bass is out front. Yeah. This guy, Revolver, he loves Revolver. Right. And you know what? Now I hear it, right. and I think, oh, yeah, the bass is out front. There's some choppy guitar behind. Right. Dirty Mind, this guy loves Prince. Mm. But that's not the way I heard it at the time. Right, 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 right. It's true, though, right? That was a crucial record for you. What? Dirty Mind. Absolutely. Big one, big one for me. Yeah, yeah. 
And that record, Let Love Rule, I've heard you talk about this, came out and you get a phone call from Prince, right? I did. He called me after he heard the record and wanted to meet me. And I met him. I was in L.A. at the time. I met him at some sound stage. I forget where it was. Somewhere, in, maybe in Burbank. Or, and that started our relationship. And we were friends up, you know, from then till the end. When you got a call from Prince back then, did the phone just ring and you heard a voice and it was like, yeah. hey, it's Prince? And really? I, you know, and it's like, I never knew where he got the number from. It was kind of like when Bill Clinton called me. It was like, I was like, How, how'd you get my number? Let me well, just pick that name well, up off the, the floor for well, you. It was kind of like right? when Bill Clinton called. Come on. Well, it's... When people that, By the way, Bill Clinton, I understand where he could get the number. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but I thought to say it the first time he called, I was like, Hello? <laughs> Um, but yeah, Prince called me and, um, yeah, it was really beautiful that he was supportive and basically saying like, okay, we're brothers, let's meet up. Yeah. He was, I mean, in high school, listening to that Dirty Mind record, uh, was so much for me. Yeah. I used to listen to it in high school and I had to jump up when Head came on to turn it down so my mom wouldn't hear the lyrics. Head was the track, right? Amazing. Yeah. Do you do the same thing now for other artists who you might hear a kinship? Like when you hear a Greta Van Fleet or a Curtis Harding who's opening mm-hmm. for you on tour, here's somebody else who draws on music that you've drawn on. Mm-hmm. Do you pick up the phone and tell them, hey, man, I, I know where you're coming from. I know some of what's going to happen. Not so much, but like in certain cases, I'll invite people to come play with me. Mm-hmm. And they'll come and do some gigs with us and open up with me. Curtis and I became friendly on the tour. He did a bunch of dates in Europe with me, Gary Clark Jr., and few other people. That is a very soulful and stylish grouping. Yeah. Yeah. Gary's amazing. He blessed us and was special guest for several shows. Um, it's great to hear music that is organic. People are actually playing instruments. I dig it. We've got to raise vibration. Raise vibration. Mm. You brought up the idea of the title track from this record. Mm-hmm. We've got to raise our vibration. Raise mm-hmm. you, you mentioned Jesus, you mentioned Gandhi, you mentioned Dr. King in this song. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about this song. It's about going to that level and raising our vibration and acting on peace, nonviolence. And it ends, as you heard at the end of the record, it ends with these Native American singers and drummers chanting at the end, which makes it even more powerful. Mm. Where did that come from? Was that music that you saw people just, performing or I, is it? I've always been into that. And actually my great grandmother was full blood Cherokee on my mom's side of the family. I have a friend, Cree Summer, who uh, I made a record on in 98, seven or eight called Street Fairy. It's a really cool record. I made it at the same time I made five. Mm. I made Cree's record and my record in, in, at Compass Point in Nassau at the same time. She grew up on a reservation. She's been the one who's really educated me on on that music. And so I was in L.A. and I was speaking to her and I said, I, I hear this sound for this song. And uh, she found the, the players for me and I flew them over. And the first intention was to put them on the song, mm-hmm. in the middle of the song, while in the break. It was so pure on its own that anytime they did it in the track, some it's, of the it's power almost like away. you change channels. Like you, yeah. you're, you're in a different song entirely yeah. at that moment. So right? instead of putting them in the track, I waited till the end of the song and then 
fade them in at the end and they chat for a while. Comes a coda and an added message, yeah. right? Yeah, it was, so it was really beautiful. Yeah. And the track is very sparse. It just starts with a guitar and a vocal for like a while before the drums kick in. Yeah. You talked a little bit about letting love rule. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that, that you've carried forth as a program throughout your work. And I want to ask you about this song, Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily about Johnny Cash. It's not, not Johnny about Cash. Johnny Cash at all. You know, one well, way... But it's about something that happened. It's about a feeling that Johnny Cash left me with. In one way of describing this song is is about wanting to find someone who looks at you or treats you the way June Carter treated Johnny, right? Yeah. Well, basically, I was singing to somebody that I was having a very deep breakup with. Mm. And I'm telling them in this song how I need them. And I wish it wasn't going to end. And I'm asking for their comfort. So... Shoot to me writing this song. I wake up with this song in my head and I go to the studio and I'm playing on the Fender Rhodes and I'm playing the chords and I'm singing the melody. I didn't have any words, but the only words that were coming out of my mouth was Hold Me Like Johnny Cash, which is the first line of the hook. And I'm sitting there singing this Hold Me Like Johnny Cash and I'm thinking to myself, what am I talking? What? Hold me like Johnny Cash. What does that mean? And so as the words sort of streaming out of me and I wrote more words I realized I was like oh this is serious so basically the day my mother died I was in the hospital it was in Los Angeles at the time Mm. and I knew she had maybe just a few days left but I was in the hospital all day on this particular day and I took a break to go home to shower get some food and I was then gonna go back at the time I was living at Rick Rubin's house in L.A. I'd lived with Rick for several years. That was my spot in L.A. He gave me a little wing of the house and very sweet. And at that particular time, Johnny Cash was making the acoustic record. Mm. So he was living at the house as well. So I drove from the hospital. I get to the house. I get the phone call that my mom had passed. I was shocked because I didn't know what was going to happen like that. And I wanted to be there. And I'm standing at the bottom of the stairs, and I'm sure I looked shocked and out of it. And Johnny and June were coming down the stairs to go out. And I'm sure Johnny could see that something was wrong with me. So he said, Lenny, hey, what's what's going on? How are you? And I said, my mom just died. And the two of them came down the stairs and just grabbed me and held me really tightly and consoled me. They were comforting me. They were telling me all of these things and saying very beautiful, supportive things. It was a really human, beautiful moment because we weren't close like that. We we were living in the same house. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good afternoon. Nice to see you. We never got into like a real deep conversation because we were always coming and going and Mm -hmm. having things to do. But they took 10 minutes whatever it was, and just sat there with me. And so the chorus says, hold me like Johnny Cash when I lost my mother, whisper in my ear, just like June Carter. And though I fight these tears that I hide, just hold me tight for the rest of my life. So obviously the last time I was comforted 
on a level like that was the time that Johnny Cash and June Carter mm. held me when my mom died. And that feeling is what I was looking for from this person. And that was the way to tell the story. And it's also quite surreal that the moment that my mother dies, there's nobody around. There's nobody in my family. I'm by myself. And the only people that are there are Johnny Cash and June Carter. I mean, yeah. that's surreal. Right. So and, that's, and, and, and they had such a powerful connection. The oh, two well, of the them. two of them were one, you know. And you see that when people are that close. I mean, they when one passed, the next one right. wasn't too far behind. Right. But they were one. It was beautiful to see. And they were just beautiful people. And I, I had that moment. They were there at a very crucial moment and did what they felt they should do. And it was the exact thing that I needed. Mm. Yeah. I want to circle back to the Genesis point of this record. We, mm. we, you were talking about before you knew what direction to go in or mm. you had opened yourself up to going in whatever direction you would. I know you've talked a little bit about hearing from other people that you should well, maybe work with this producer or yeah. that producer. Yeah. What were people wanting out of they, Lenny Kravitz? They, they want you to be quote-unquote relevant, contemporary. But what's that sound like To today? being in fashion, to what's going on. That would mean, I guess, me adopting, you know, like whatever's on the radio. So first, I mean, so making some sort of pop dance or trap record? What, yeah. Like, yeah, perhaps, right? Yeah. Which could be an interesting challenge, just as could an artistic an interesting challenge. collaboration. It's not a record that I would make. I'm going to make what I make. Mm -hmm. But there were lots of opinions. Mm. And so that was part of the confusion. But it was, as I said, it was an interesting process. It's interesting. It could be interesting to try to just do it to see what happens, you know. Uh, and I did. You did. I actually did with a few folks. Just to be open. Mm -hmm. Open see, to the process. Yeah, because people are saying, you know, you got to drop your ego. And you gotta it was never about ego. It was about, this is how I work. When a painter is painting his painting, nobody says, well, why don't you get a few other people involved here and let them throw some colors on there. And, there aren't a lot of people like you who are making their records essentially by themselves. Right. I mean, mo most people, whether they're in a band making mm. rock music or whether they're making pop music mm. or working in a team of collaborators. And there aren't a lot of people in the music business who have the artistic freedom to say, well, I'd like to do it the way I'd like right. to do it. Well, I always had, from day one, I had creative control. That was in my contract from day one. But people were just saying, and, and, and you make it so hard on yourself. You do everything. Why don't you just do this? Make it easier. And so I tried it. And actually did some really cool things with one group of guys. If you're not and, able to say who they were, can you tell us what the vibe was, what the sound was? It's hard to say what it was. Mm. It was just different. Mm. But I made some really good friends from these two particular people. And I'm sure we're going to put out some of that stuff because it was cool. But it, it wasn't what this record should be. It's something else. But I knew I had a record to make and statements to make and sounds to make that weren't that. Okay, so so far we've heard about this collaboration mm. and uh, a punky Ramonesy version of 
it's, it's enough. enough. Yeah, yeah. So what else is in the vault, Lenny? Have we got 30 years of stuff in the vault? What's in there? <laughs> I'm not sure. One day I'll go through it and see what's there. For me, I'm always looking forward. The next record's 98% done, so I'm, my head's in that thing now. Is this the record I've heard about, a little about, where you've collaborated with different people across the years and put these recordings yeah, together? Yeah, or is yeah, this... yeah. It's a very funky, greasy, raw, very raw who, who else? Who else was involved in these Thus recordings? Thus far, George Clinton, Alan Toussaint, God rest his soul, Kenny Burrell, legendary jazz guitarist, Bill Summers, who was the percussionist for Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters, Fred Wesley, trombonist for James Brown and others, Maceo Parker, saxophonist for James Brown, Big Black, the percussionist who, I don't know if you ever saw Soul Power from the Muhammad Ali. Yeah, He's, yeah. he's the, the percussionist yeah, that did yeah. that, that big solo in the middle of the concert. Yeah, there's some very cool, eclectic... You're in a different um, world with each one of these people What's the 2% all over this that's thing. missing? How do we get this out of you? I have a little mixing to do. I have maybe a, a vocal to do, and I have a few more collaborations. All right, I'm canceling vacation. You got to get this done. Yeah. Lenny, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Inside the Studio is an iHeartRadio original podcast created by Chris Peterson. This episode was written and hosted by me, Joe Levy. Our executive producer is Sandy Smallins for Audiation, and our mixer is Matt Noble. We'd like to give a big thanks to Lenny Kravitz and BMG Records. And you can follow Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts. 